Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to A Biblical Frame, where we are looking at current events from a biblical theological perspective. Uh, We have looked thus far at the theme of fear, the theme of freedom, and today we're going to look at a topic that we find very important given current events, and that is the theme of resistance. I'm your host today. My name is Ed Gerber, and I'm here today with Douglas Farrell, who is Professor of Theology and Ethics at McGill University. Jens Zimmerman, who is the J.I. Packer of Theology at Regent College. Ivan De Silva, who's an instructor in Religious Studies at Trinity Western University and Pacific Life Bible College. And our featured and very special guest today is Michael Rechtenwald. Dr. Rechtenwald holds a Ph.D. in Literal and Cultural Studies from Carnegie Mellon University. He is the former Professor of Liberal Studies and Global Liberal Studies at New York University from 2008 to 2019. Michael has taught at many institutions, including Duke. He's the author of 11 books, including Thought Criminal, Beyond Woke, Google Archipelago, Springtime for Snowflakes, and 19th Century British Secularism, among many other works. Michael is currently the Chief Academic Officer and Co-Founder of American Scholars, a pro-American education platform. But perhaps most interesting for the moment, and given our topic for today, I also just learned, looking at Michael's website this morning at michaelrechtenwald.com, that Michael has just finished a book, I already mentioned it, but want to underline it, that riffs off Orwell's classic 1984 called Thought Criminal, the 1984 of the COVID era. All of you, welcome, Michael, a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. It's a delight to be with you as well. So just let me give a sense for the guests who are joining us today on this podcast uh, what our outline will be. We're each going to be offering reflections on the topic of resistance from various perspectives. Um, And Michael's going to go first, and we're going to respond to that. And then as the podcast goes on, we're each going to offer a reflection that we prepared and then talk about that. So, Michael, I invite you to uh, share your reflections to begin with here. Okay, great. Thank you. So I'm going to start with uh, reading from an essay uh, called Living in the Age of COVID, The Power of the Powerless. Um, I will read excerpts from this, not the whole thing. A specter is haunting the world. The increasing prospect of a new totalitarianism under the extended COVID response Unlike the specter of communism or the specter of dissent to communist dictatorship, this specter originates from those in power and not from the revolutionary or the powerless. And rather than haunting only Europe or Eastern Europe, this specter casts its long shadow across the future of all humanity, such that one wonders how one might plan, if at all, for this future. Mixed into this spectral fear are grave doubts promoted by some about the intentions of world leaders and a medical and technocratic elite apparently bent on lockdowns, masking, and mandatory mass vaccinations. In seeking comparable scenarios to the COVID regime, I thought it time to look to to the Eastern Bloc exemplars exemplars of resistance. As such, my search led to the essay that forms part of my title. However distinct the two scenarios, parallels may be drawn between what Vaclav Havel called post-totalitarianism of the Soviet bloc 
Czechoslovakia and the system developing out of the COVID crisis. The issue at stake is pursuing the aims of life in the face of ongoing terror. It should not matter what side of the fence you are on if pursuing the aims of life is your agenda. By post-totalitarianism, Havel did not mean a state or condition after totalitarianism. He meant a new form of bureaucratic rule, a totalizing system in which power does not simply originate from a singular dictator and flow downward, but rather one that involves the entire society and conscripts the population into its very structure. In the post-totalitarian system, Havel suggested, quote, this line of power runs de facto through each person, for everyone in his or her own way is both a victim and supporter of the system, end quote. Everyone is, quote, forced to live within the lie, and all subjects become agents of automatism, automatic receivers, messengers, and executors of the post-totalitarian logic. Havel provides an example of one such subject, a typical green grocer. The green grocer routinely puts a sign in his storefront window that reads, Workers of the World Unite. He does so not necessarily because he believes in the semantic content of the slogan, although he may, but he puts the sign in his window because he would become conspicuous by the sign's absence if he did not. By posting the sign, he consciously or unconsciously seeks to stay out of the crosshairs of severe repression. The green grocer's sign is ideological because its semantic content is, quote, noble, while its semiotic function works in the opposite direction. Its function is to ensure conformity to a system that has nothing to do with the welfare of the workers. Under communism, it is the Marxist true believers who live in false consciousness. The sign is just that, a semiotic syntang that signals compliance and complicity. And the sign feeds into a wider panorama of compliance and complicity while compelling others to do the same. The greengrocer's plastering of the sign is a piece within a system that enrolls its subjects in its own administration. Subjects who by their participation ensure the participation of others and who together help to constitute the post-totalitarianism at large. Quote, if an entire district is town is plastered with slogans that no one reads, it is on the one hand a message from the district secretary to the regional secretary, but it is also something more, a small example of the principle of of social auto-totality at work. Part of the essence of the post-totalitarian system is that it draws everyone into its sphere of power so that they may become agents of the system's general automatism and servants of its self-determined goals. More than this, so they may create their own involvement in a general norm and thus bring pressure to bear on their fellows. And further, so that they may learn to be comfortable with their own involvement, to identify it with, with it as though it were something natural and inevitable. Ultimately, so they may, with no external urging, come to treat non-involvement as abnormality, as arrogance, as an attack on themselves, as a form of dropping out of society. By putting everyone into its power structure, the post-totalitarian system makes everyone instruments of a mutual totality, the auto-totality of society. 
However, not everyone can live the lie of ideological conformity under post-totalitarianism. Havel points to those who begin to live within the truth. They no longer feign belief and thus cease to be complicit with the system. But those who do so are promptly canceled. Quote, let us imagine that one day something in our greengrocer snaps and he stops putting up the slogans merely to ingratiate himself. The bill is not long in coming. He will be relieved of his post as manager of the shop and transfer, tra- transferred to the warehouse. His pay will be reduced. His hopes for a holiday in Bulgaria will evaporate. His children's access to higher education will be threatened. His superiors will harass him and his fellow workers will wonder about him. Most of those who apply these sanctions, however, will not do so from any authentic inner conviction, but simply under pressure from conditions, the same conditions that once pressured the green grocer to display the official slogans. They will persecute the green grocer either because it is, is it expected of them or to demonstrate their loyalty or simply as part of the general panorama to which belongs an awareness that it, this is how situations of this sort are dealt with, that this, in fact, is how things are always done, particularly if one is not to become suspect oneself. End quote. Thus, the non-compliant is marked by his lack of signaling. He is isolated and demonized. He becomes a pariah and is exiled from the community. He loses his status and faces hardship or worse. Sound familiar? Yet such persons as the green grocer may eventually join with others to constitute, quote, a hidden sphere, end quote, a counter public that by its very adherence to living within the truth challenges the post-totalitarian system at its core. That's because the system is constructed from a tissue of lies and the mere existence of people who defy the lies poses a threat to this construction. They betray the mendacity of the system and may shake others' belief in it as well. And what is meant by living within the truth? The pursuit of the aims of life in defiance of the diktats of the ruling establishment and their agents among the population. The real resistance. Havel makes clear that this hidden sphere is not a political movement per se, but rather a pre-political formation that has no program and posits no alternative system in its place. It is not a political opposition as such. Although it may develop parallel structures and a parallel polis, it is, its pre-political character is necessary for its effectiveness because of the impossibility of real political opposition under a single party system, because alternative paradigms are utopian within the post-totalitarian context, because Given an expected cynicism, no one believes in alternative political paradigms anyway, and primarily because the hidden sphere develops organically and constitutes a concrete way of living rather than an abstract model for another world. Dissidence derives from a background of people's attempts to live within the truth. It is not a matter of formal structures and will not emerge from or necessarily as political parties or institutions. Quote, there is no way around it. No matter how beautiful an alternative political model may be, it can no longer speak to the hidden sphere, inspire people and society, call for real political ferment. The real sphere of potential politics in the post-totalitarian system is elsewhere. 
in the continuing and cruel tension between the complex demands of that system and the aims of life. That is the elementary need of human beings to live to a certain extent in harmony with themselves. That is to live in, in, in a bearable way, not to be humiliated by their superiors and officials, not to be continually watched by the police, to be able to express themselves freely, to find an outlet for their creativity, to enjoy legal security and so on." End quote. The appeal is to the aims of life and not to any strictly political means and ends. Yet Havel, Havel's efforts and the efforts of his compatriots eventually did assume a political significance and managed to create another world. But only, he would argue, by having remained true to the original pre-political character of the movement. That is, they arose from the ad hoc efforts of communities to defy the lies in concrete efforts to live their lives with dignity and in the truth. Havel believed that something positive and previously impossible could emerge from post-totalitarianism. Post-totalitarianism was the crucible within which this something could be forged and from which it could usher forth. This something was a more genuine way of life, which post-totalitarianism made possible and necessary. Finally, Havel suggested that the incipient world always existed within the present one. Quote, for the real question is whether the brighter future is always so distant. What if, on the contrary, it has been here for a long time already, and only our blindness and weakness has prevented us from seeing it around us and within us, and kept us from developing it? Now, it should be clear from this discussion that the COVID regime resembles in many respects the post-totalitarian system described by Havel. Regardless of the science, or rather because of it, the COVID regime is post-totalitarian. The science has proven itself to be ideological, although continually discredited by the exaggeration of the virus's lethality, by the suppression of known cures so as to usher in a state of emergency in the mRNA vaccines, by the underreporting of vaccine deaths and injuries, by the institution and reinstitution of failed and unscientific lockdown and masking mandates, and more, the science is wielded by authorities as if a matter of fact and a matter of course, just as Marxist ideology was wielded by Soviet communists. And as under communism, even those who know the truth are compelled to live within the lie. Just as the green grocer was compelled to display signs of his loyalty under the Soviet bloc communism, signs transmitting semantic content to which he was indifferent, so the COVID citizen is compelled to display signs of compliance and complicity under the COVID regime. The signs have included donning the mask and increasingly displaying the vaccine passport in order to take part in society. And as under communism, these displays are compulsory rituals. What function do they serve? Quote, let us take note. If the COVID citizen were compelled to wear a sign that said, I am afraid, therefore unquestionably obedient, he would not be nearly as indifferent to its semantics even though the statement would reflect the truth. The COVID citizen would be embarrassed and ashamed to don such an unequivocal statement of his own degradation. And quite naturally so, for he is a human being and thus has a sense of his own dignity. 
To overcome this complication, his expression of fidelity must take the form of a sign which, at least on its surface, indicates a level of credulousness in the COVID regime. It must allow the COVID citizen to say, what's wrong with the vaccine passport? The experts say that the vaccine is necessary for my health and that of others. Thus, the vaccine passport helps the COVID citizen to conceal from himself the low foundations of his obedience, while at the same time concealing the low foundations of power. The vaccine passport hides them both behind the facade of something high, and that something is ideology. That The italicized text that I just read is my revision of a passage from Havel's essay, with the COVID citizen and the vaccine passport of the COVID regime, replacing the greengrocer and the greengrocer sign of the Soviet regime. The point is to show, mutatis mutandis, that the substitutability of the terms. Although the vaccines have shown some efficacy at mitigating the effects of the virus, they neither protect their recipients from infection and disease, nor prevent them from spreading it. And the dangers of the vaccines are not all known, although many short-term side effects, including death, have been documented. The vaccines may also be driving antibody-dependent enhancement, and with the selective pressure they put on the virus, the production of mutations, variants. The vaccines are, after all, state of emergency measures rushed into use before the necessary scientific testing to gauge their efficacy or ensure their safety could be done. Thus, they are anything but science, if by science we mean unhampered and open inquiry using the scientific method, the vaccine passport thus serves an ideological function, just as the green grocer's sign. But just as in the Soviet bloc, some COVID citizens are living within the truth. They know that masks, lockdowns, and mandated vaccines have by no means been sufficiently validated scientifically. These dissidents constitute a not-so-hidden sphere, a counter-public. They have begun to create parallel structures and a parallel policy to resist the COVID regime. As in Soviet bloc Czechoslovakia, they are not aligned with any political program and hold hold to no utopian idealism. Although in the United States the majority are Republicans and lowercase libertarians, many are not. They represent a pre-political formation. Rather than needing a political program, these dissidents seek community community in the continuing and cruel tension between the complex demands of that system and the aims of life. That is, the elementary need of human beings to live, to a certain extent, in harmony with themselves. That is, to live in a bearable way. Yet their efforts may eventually assume a political character and manage to create another world and COVID post-totalitarianism may be the crucible in which this other world is forged. They may be developing a more genuine way of living, and they may find that the brighter future is not that distant after all. It was there all along, and only blindness and weakness had prevented them from seeing it and developing it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for that, Michael. Maybe just for the sake of some of our listeners, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Vaclav Havel, as some may not really know any um, of the history there. Yes, uh, Vaclav Havel was a Czechoslovakian who lived under uh, communist rule. He was a dissident, and he eventually became president of Czechoslovakia. 
after the fall of communism, and act, which he helped to precipitate through uh, this counterpublic uh, of which he was a member. And so the essay, to me, points to hope that, in fact, that another world can emerge from this one, and that as dark as it seems, there is, there is light, and this light may penetrate even our most darkest days. One of the things that you mentioned, um, which really stood out to me, especially just having come back from a trip uh, where I had to take a flight, uh, we went to Mexico as a family. It's been a trip that we've had planned or been planning for three years, and we finally got to go. And it is so rankly apparent uh, when you're on the plane that you are gesturing and signaling your virtue and, as you put it, your signs of loyalty. I don't know if that was your phrase or... uh, Havel's phrase, but it's poignant um, because I do feel that so much of what we're doing is a sign of loyalty. And what struck me on the plane is that it has a dehumanizing and or a humiliating impact because people are wearing their masks beneath their nose and the flight attendant will come by and gesture pulling on the front of her mask so that it ascends above the tip of the nose Everywhere else, there's portholes where aerosols are, of course, pouring through. But we all have to participate in what increasingly feels like a um, dehumanizing charade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, are, are there other signs of loyalty that people are experiencing, do you think? Anybody in the room? Yeah. Because the mask is the most transparent, isn't it? The mask and the vaccine passport, right. yeah. um, you know, which is really what caused the trucker revolt and, um, and their loss of status that came with the, uh, with the response by the Canadian government, uh, their vilification and dehumanization by the regime. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was. In, it's interesting because I was looking at my book, uh, Propaganda, by Jacques Ellul. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that book. It is quite a piece of work. And he was talking about how uh, those who are most allergic to propaganda are actually the, uh, the working class. And um, they seem to be allergic to it. It doesn't impact them, and I haven't gotten to the part of the book where he, he promises he will explain this, but I did find it rather interesting that it was the truckers who are the ones who are taking up the cause and uh, willing to look like the pariahs in society uh, by standing up, but um, for some, they looked very heroic. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, uh, this is all interesting what you said, Michael. It reminds me... Um, this kind of loyalty and obedience in the green grocer. I, so I grew up um, next to East Germany, and we visited a number of times as a kid, and we were always so astonished how uh, a whole populace could be trained and raised up to live so unfreely. Even as kids, we, we noticed that. So my question to you is, how did we get to this conformism so quickly here in the so-called West where I thought we were trained to be freer? You know, I, so I see these forms of uh, what I would call communist behavior and conformism um, so quickly arising here where people show these signs of loyalties willingly. How did we get there so fast when it took 
a regime like East Germany uh, at least a, a couple of decades or so until they got most people uh, you know, conformed by um, punishments. You could be hauled off by the Stasi and everybody knew there were spies everywhere and so on. How did we, how did we get so quickly to the stage? Well, I don't think we did get here quickly. I think it was a long, uh, well, a long march through the institutions, really, mm. and the infiltration of um, uh, psychopaths into government and state positions and the infiltration of um, ideological conformity through the training of uh, our leaders, uh, people like Trudeau, uh, like Macron in France, like Ardern in uh, New Zealand. Uh, these people were trained to be the um, resident uh, authoritarians. Leftist authoritarianism has been on the rise. I believe it's it's been 70-plus years that it's been uh, propagated And uh, it seems to have started in the university system mm -hmm. uh, and spread there, metastasized to the larger social body. Uh, but I think even that, in that case, um, the universities were merely hothouses that were effectively, uh, shall I say, uh, uh, superintended by an elite Uh, that is dead set on installing uh, this kind of leftist authoritarian state. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and that would that explain the, to you why why I, I might want to um, hear D Douglas on this as well as a university prof. I, I'm I've been astonished how many colleagues uh, who deem themselves educated just kind of seem to fall for this and seem to not uh, be able to resist even in thought and be critical. Do you think that's why that you said it comes through the academy that those who deem themselves educated and intellectually on a certain level, that's why they um, are so susceptible to that kind of stuff? You're asking me or Douglas? Yeah, both something? of you. Douglas, do you want to say something? Well, I have been pondering that because, of course, we're <clears throat> in, those of us in the academy are witnessing it close up. Um, but what strikes me um, the most about it is is how far it is driven by fear. Mm. Some of the other phenomena that we've witnessed in terms of the academy uh, abandoning reason. Um, seem to be rooted in something other than fear, um, so, various other things, including, of course, a search for power and, and authority. But this one seems to be driven quite extensively by fear in, in a large segment of academia. And then there's a segment which which does not show many signs of fear, but does seem to be devoted to this change in culture, which produces the kind of bureaucratic tyranny that Michael was describing. And those people, of course, um, they, they're fewer, but they are more dangerous because they maintain 
uh, control of the levers of power or seize control of the levers of power. And then they utilize the fear of the others to justify their own actions. Hmm. And what would you say they're afraid of? When you say many are driven by fear, what precisely is that fear? Is it the fear of social exclusion? Is it the fear of standing on one's own? No, well, yes, I suppose it is. But in the but in the first place, it's it's actually a succumbing to the propaganda about the fear, the fearsomeness of the coronavirus. So I I mean I do know colleagues who who are, uh, or at least were. I'm not sure what's happening at the moment. Um, uh, you know, almost paralyzed by fear of of this virus. In other words, they seemed dreadfully susceptible to the propaganda that was produced. Now, of course, the propaganda was produced professionally. It was what some have called military-grade um, propaganda, and, and there were people from the military's uh, military intelligence, military planning, and so forth involved in producing that propaganda from the outset, from March of 2020. So I suppose they've succumbed to something that was pretty well done, but at this point, if they're still afraid, uh, they've kept they've kept uh, they've kept their um, mental apparatus turned off. I'm afraid. Yeah. So let me put. Let me ask you this quickly, um, both of you too. Again, maybe just to push back yeah. on that, uh, Douglas. So we we know as Christians that only love overcomes fear, but you could argue from an enlightenment point of view that knowledge also helps. Like knowledge helps to overcome. Fear, right? If I if I know about the situation and can suss it out, then my fear may be unreasonable. I can, I can get there by knowledge. So how is it that uh, people like you and Michael and others have made that that effort, have looked at the situation, have clicked around on the internet for crying out loud, have found the requisite information, and um, can overcome the fear or be critical about it and others and I agree with you I know many colleagues that still don't want to return to campus because they're really seriously afraid that they would catch a deadly virus I'll let Michael go first because he was about to say something I believe yeah I think the fear is a double jeopardy really um, if it's not the virus itself or the coronavirus uh, COVID that they're afraid of and it's backed up by the force of the regime. Uh, and so compliance is just easier uh, in a sense uh, because it's true. you don't fall afoul of the regime and it reinforces the fear of the vaccine and your sense of safety with reference to that. So there's a double safety that comes with compliance. You don't... Uh, you don't have the fear of the regime because they're not going to get you immediately. And you don't have the fear, you know, you quell to some extent the fear of the of COVID. So both of these things operate, and I think it keeps a, a, the majority in line uh, and uh, operates on a, I think, partly subconscious level. I do agree that the co- propaganda was professional. I do think it started well before COVID uh, arose, um, I think that uh, part of the indoctrination was happening long before COVID actually came about. Uh, And 
there's also a reward system in a, in place too, uh, because uh, those who spew the right doctrines are given authority and credibility, and those mm-hmm. who don't are deemed stupid or um, or politically they're treated like pariahs. So, you know, I mean. I think the social justice uh, woke movement actually serves as a predicate for this, uh, as a way of uh, putting people in line and uh, showing what happens to those who defect. They become criminalized or uh, punished in many ways. Uh, So the punishment of the COVID regime really falls on the heels of the punishment that came from the woke regime well that that is very well stated michael because and this was uh, illustrated perfectly by our prime minister when the truckers because of their activities and those who were associated with them uh, were not spoken to they weren't dialogued with but rather they were uh, brandished with certain names and epithets that were very unflattering they were labeled according to um well, social justice categories of those who stand on the outside of everything that is good, just, beautiful, and equitable. And uh, so those two things were married together in his statements. This was the way of shutting them down and shutting them up. Absolutely. I, I think in, in response to uh, Jens' question about the, 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 um, what prompts people I'll, I'll, I'll let Michael say what prompted him, but uh, but I'll say what I've said before in terms of what prompted me. When you see that kind of behavior that Ed was just describing, and we saw forms of it right from the outset, when you see what is evidently propaganda and you see authorities encouraging people to live in fear, which there is no justification for in any crisis. The, the, the crisis may be quite fearsome, much more fearsome than this one, but, but the, the task of the authorities is to calm the people and help them think and behave rationally as well as to work together. But when they chose fear as the instrument for hurting people right away, uh, it was evident that something was badly awry here. And, and so I, I, I think there were those of us who have re- been resisting this for a long time already now, and seems a, a very long time, um, we had not only um, been studying the, the trends and tendencies, but we had learned to recognize some of the symptoms. And we saw... We saw that immediately. In terms of the trends and tendencies, well, uh, what I've been been writing about in my recent uh, essays on Substack is is what I've been looking at Chesterton and how he saw a hundred years ago that the kind of materialistic evolutionism that had prevailed in Western universities and Western society was inevitably going to lead to, uh, and was already in his lifetime, leading to a eugenics regime. Mm. And that this would have to take the form of a health tyranny. So he, he, he was unfolding that already a century ago. 
and uh, and I've tried to elucidate uh, a bit of that in in the essays entitled "Anarchy mm-hmm. from Above," which are uh, that that phrase is taken from his book "Eugenics and Other Evils," uh, which which I try to explore and help people to see that what's going on around us is not something that could not be foreseen, mm-hmm. although a great many of us did not foresee the precise form it would take. Chesterton did. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, what what shocks me recently is that um, increasing amounts of evidence are coming out about what several of us were saying two years ago in terms of the collateral damages as a consequence of the way that we're trying to deal with this virus are going to outweigh the benefit of the way we were responding to it. So the costs of our response are outweighing the benefits. We're seeing that in spades. Notwithstanding this, people are still hand-waving the collateral damage away, which for me, and I'm trying to segue to Ivan's paper a little bit here, uh, for me, it demonstrates just how caught we are in the talons of a propaganda machine, and that in some ways, many of us have um, been brainwashed by a media who continually, uh, as Michael was saying, offers rewards for those who think in a certain way. And uh, um, I think this is a good spot to jump into Ivan's paper because I think you're saying something about this. Right. Thanks, Ed, and um, brilliant discussion. I guess I want to uh, bring it over into the church and address the believers in the church about the, the issue of resistance because, of course, many Christians are averse to this word and this idea because of a belief that they are supposed to unquestioningly obey our governments. And oftentimes what they will say is, well, the Bible uh, teaches that governments have been put in place by God and they are there to look after us and we must obey them. And I trust the government. And it is that issue that I would like to address in a few comments. And in order to, I know the time is running on, so I'm going to uh, read a few comments I wrote, and then we'll see where that goes. Is that okay? That's great. All right, so according to the New Testament, the state is never the friend of the church. However, that does not mean that it is always the enemy of the church. It is possible for the church and the state to be traveling on parallel tracks. In that case, each does what God has ordained it to do. The church goes about building God's kingdom, and the state goes about maintaining a just and ordered society. This is more or less the scenario in the mid-50s, when uh, mid-50s AD, I should say, when Paul writes a letter to the Roman Christians advising them in Romans 13 to submit to the state as God's minister for their good. However, that is not the whole New Testament teaching on church-state relations. There is another significant book that also teaches about the church and the state, and that, of course, is the book of Revelation. And it also has a chapter 13. And in Revelation chapter 13, we have a very different view of the state and a very different view of church-state relationships. No longer is the church and the state traveling on parallel tracks. Now the state has set itself on a collision course, 
with the church and has become the opponent of the church. When Paul described the state in Romans 13, he called it God's servant. He used two words, diakonos and laitugoi, both translated as minister or servant. He called it God's servant and told Christians to submit, very important word, submit to it. When John describes the state in Revelation 13, he calls it the beast and tells Christians to resist it. So right in the New Testament, we have two very different pictures on what the state is and how Christians are to treat it. Our challenge is to discern which state are we in today, literally, right now in Canada. My own answer to that is it is no longer the state of Romans 13. And while we may not be quite at the stage John depicts, we have certainly moved away from the state as God's servant and moved closer to the state as the beast. And if that is the case, then the proper response to the state, the response that honors God, is not unquestioning submission, but active resistance. I'll come back to this in a minute. It may be good to ask how we arrived at this stage. How, in other words, did we move from Romans 13, to, uh, which was the case probably just a few years ago, to the state we are in now? The move can arise from either side. It is possible, for example, that the church becomes rebellious and seeks to overthrow the God-ordained institutions of the state, perhaps on a mistaken idea that renouncing the world includes renouncing all secular authority. But I don't think that's what's happened here. This time, I believe the problem arose on the side of the state. Our governments have increasingly arrogated for themselves powers and rights that belong only to God. They have begun to dictate to us as if they were God and to institute laws and practices that are in direct violation of God's laws. And whenever you, you have a case where the state forgets that it exists in a hierarchy of which God is the head and seeks to move to the top of that hierarchy, it doesn't become more godlike, it becomes more beast-like. Mm. Replacing God with anything does not make that thing godly, just the opposite. It makes it more devilish. And that, I'm suggesting, is what's happening with our governments now, both at the federal level and also at the provincial level here in BC. So, what are Christians to do? Here, I think it is important for us to understand how we are to relate to the state. Even in Romans 13, where Paul describes the state as God's servant, what he tells Christians to do is to submit to the state from the verb hupatasso. He doesn't tell them to obey which would be patho, the state. He could have. For example, the author of Hebrews tells Christians to obey and to submit to their leaders. But Paul only tells Christians to submit to the state, which is also exactly what Peter tells them in 1 Peter 2.13. To submit means to consider yourself in a lower position on the scale of hierarchy, to recognize there are authorities above you. In other words, to submit is a posture, that we take towards our governments. We consider them as having authority over us, and of course that includes doing what they tell us as much as possible. But the fact that Paul deliberately left out obey suggests to me one can submit to authority while at the same time not obeying everything that authority demands, especially when those demands are incompatible with God's demands. In that case, what the New Testament calls us to is resistance. So let me end with a word on resistance. Resistance is not the same as revolution. 
to resist the government in some of its demands is light years away from mounting a revolution to overthrow the government. And in any case, often, uh, but unfortunately often, Christians think they are the same. But we live in a democratic system for now at least, and every four years or so, we can, if we wanted to, quote-unquote, overthrow the government. Resisting the government, however, when it takes on divine powers, is something we must do. Indeed, not to resist it is to join it in its rebellion against God and face God's wrath along with it. But how do we resist? We resist, first of all, by not doing what they tell us to do. We disobey their unjust orders. Once again, this does not mean that we disobey everything. We must still pay our taxes, obey all the rest of the laws that we can, but we must not obey their illegal and discriminatory laws. It is selective disobedience. In every other area, we are submissive and obedient. Secondly, we resist with the truth. Truth is our greatest weapon. To fight with the truth means we understand that truth exists above and apart from the government. That's if the government tells us this is true, we don't just assume it's true. Rather, we do with the government's claims what the noble Bereans did with Paul's claims. We must search out the facts to see if what our governments are telling us is the truth. As Yen said, do some clicking on the internet. We must search out the facts to see if what our governments are telling us is the truth. Here, I think we, have, we as Christians have failed. We have not done this with the pandemic and the COVID crisis. Have we checked out the facts for ourselves? Or have we put complete trust and faith in the government and their media to tell us what's what? I'm afraid Christians will critique a sermon more quickly than they would critique some of Bonnie Henry's edicts. Thirdly, we must be willing to pay the penalty for our resistance. And there will be penalties. The beast is not benign. The very reason John uses the image of a beast to depict the Roman state in the 90s is to highlight its ruthless and brutal character. The beast will seek to crush all resistance to it. Revelation 13.15 predicts that those who do not worship the beast, that is, do not obey its demands, might be slain. But, and here's my final point, fourthly, we will win. Resistance may lead to suffering and sometimes to martyrdom, but in the end, in the end, we will triumph. Our sufferings are the means by which God will defeat the beastly state. So, if we have lost jobs, been unable to travel, had our bank accounts frozen, have had loved ones turn away from us, let us not lose heart. We are on the winning side. We are on the side that wins because Jesus, the true king, has won the war. And like him, we win in death. Revelation 12:11 should be one of our mottos. And I quote, And they have conquered him mm. by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, As the Son of Man is lifted up, the prince of this world will be thrown out. In John's Gospel chapter 12, the Son is lifted up on the cross. In Revelation chapter 12, Jehanine literature, the dragon is cast down. The concept within John is, as the Son is lifted up on the cross, the dragon 
the enemy of God's people is thrown down. And for those who aren't familiar, you, I love the way you kind of illustrate for us the reform principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture and applying it to this issue of obeying the government. But for those who aren't familiar with Revelation 12 and 13, a quick primer on that would be that in Revelation chapter 12, I, I think it's actually a, crisp, a Christmas text. This is the birth of Jesus. And when Jesus is born, because he is the king of kings, the dragon is cast down. It, John collapses the events of Jesus' life into a single moment. And so the dragon is tossed down. He promises he's going to go after the offspring of um, the lamb, those who obey and continue to testify and witness to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in chapter 13, then, the dragon stands on the shore of the sea, shore of the sea and he summons up two beasts. The one is a land beast, which might be understood as dragon-inspired politics, and then the other beast is dragon-inspired religion. And you kind of have here a false trinity within Revelation 12 and 13. If you look at the descriptions that are given to the beasts, they um, take on to themselves numbers and figures that would be applicable for God, but it's a false trinity. And it's the government and the religion which end up serving the dragon. So just for those who aren't familiar with that text very well. And I think also for those who look at the apocalypse or revelation, these sorts of things are going on all the time. So we had a discussion earlier before we were online about is this the end of the world or is it the end of a world? And uh, certainly you're going to see features of the end of the world um, in the end of worlds, more particularly the ends of cultures, the ends of civilizations, the ends of one worldview as it's giving way to another one uh, that had generated the society in the first place. I would um, th- uh, thank you. I mean, that was very helpful. I, I, <clears throat> I would challenge those who worry that any um, resistance that is active rather than passive or that um, threatens uh, some kind of lawlessness uh, indeed some might use the word anarchy and this was used by our government against the freedom convoy and the many protesters who gathered around the freedom convoy uh, to to celebrate the um, achievement of standing up for the rights of the people. This was characterized as anarchy. And, and revolution is something that is also seen along with anarchy as something in which uh, Christians in particular ought not to participate. But one of, one of the insights that Chesterton had um, that the one that gave me the the uh, title uh, anarchy from above is that what 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 the state is doing what those who are pulling the strings of people in positions of power in the in the, not only our state but but many jurisdictions many states what it is doing by his description and definition is anarchy from above. It's, it's, it's incessant repetition of something that might have been said sensibly once or twice, but takes the form of, of 
uh, a kind of mad persistence that doesn't know how to stop. A revolution, he says, is, is, is something that does know how to stop. It, it knows there's a problem. It does something perhaps quite dramatic to set that problem straight, to overcome it, and to, and to make it possible for people to go back to pursuing those human goods that Michael was talking about with Vaclav's Havel's uh, help. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a, with a well-considered act of resistance that puts a stop to something that otherwise has no stop and, and drives, drives us all mad. Mm. So I, I, don't, I don't think that, that people who use the scriptures or Christian doctrine to say, well, because of Romans 13, uh, uh, we, we, we just can't ever consider doing something contrary to the state. When you're confronted in the state by this beast-like state, the, the, the state critiqued in Revelation, mm-hmm. um, you, you're obligated to resist. You're obligated to, to, um, to protect your family, your neighbors, your, the churches, the rest of the community from this all-devouring um, um, dragon that, that is this lawless state and this anarchic state. So the fact that the state claims authority over you doesn't mean that it is actually exercising a legitimate authority. And and I think there are a lot of people who have who have resisted even questioning the the portrayal of the situation by the state because they think even to question it is somehow to be a revolutionary and we mustn't be revolutionaries. Uh, th- this is a misguided conception, and I'm thankful for the encouragement to reconsider it uh, with with the help of the apocalypse. Uh, because quite rightly, it was said that you know th- these these kinds of things happen in history, uh, as as I understand the New Testament, beginning with Jesus' Olivet discourse, it 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 reaches a crescendo as history progresses, and we don't know quite where we're at in this crescendo. But we do know that it's happening, and we are seeing a lot of its character and its nature, this lawless law, this this anarchic authority. Mm-hmm. And we need to find appropriate ways to, to resist it firmly and to try to get it to stop for the sake of the next generation or generations. Amen. And I think Bonhoeffer did try to do that. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. I mean, I I didn't want to. I don't want to see if Michael wanted to respond in any way. But I, what I had to say um, fits right into where where um, Ivan, where you started. Um, so I'm just going to give Michael a chance to respond, and if not, then I'll just carry on. Yeah, I thought that was uh, an ex- excellent explication of uh, scripture, and you know, um, I, I can't help but agree that. Uh, we're in a condition where the state is lawless. And uh, because we can see that with the ever-changing narrative and the way that the narrative has continuously lied and continuously deceived and attempted and, and then shaped-shifted. 
uh, all the shape shifting of the narrative, uh, hmm. and uh, the the deceptiveness of it, and the ruthlessness of it, hmm. and the ruthlessness of the state in dealing with defectors. To me, evidence is a lawless, anarchic state, and likewise, I think it authorizes us mm-hmm. to resist it. Mm. Amen. Yeah, I like the I like uh, Douglas's um, allusion to a crescendo, which reminds me of a you know a piece of music or a symphony. So is this the crescendo that is one of those you know moments of drama within the symphony where it will simmer down again and it will continue, or is this the final concluding crescendo that leads up to the Beethovenian end, you know, of the symphony? That's that'd be the question of whether we are in the end times, at, or at, at the end of a world, right? Well, it's interesting. This crescendo, in fact, the cyclical nature nature of history, but also the escalation of events is instantiated within the literary structure of the book of Revelation in the apocalypse. When you have the initial judgments in the um, in the blowing or the uh, the seals, it's I, now I think it's a quarter. But then in the next cycle of seven, as it goes, right, because the whole book operates heptatically, it moves by sevens. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls. You have a third of mankind is destroyed. Mm. And then, or you have a quarter, then a third, and then the whole thing. So it, it goes like that in the book as well. Sorry, just had to get that parenthesis no, in there. Uh, so let's, let me try to um, maybe just add on to um, what Ivan has been saying, and that's as good as it'll help me to cut straight to Bonhoeffer. I was going to say some similar things, but just not as well. Um, <laughs> so I was just interested in the question, um, why Christians, why the church has been so weak in resisting? Mm-hmm. And so the implication for me is that there is unsaid, unspoken, or articulated the sense that Christianity just is inherently apolitical, right? It's not political. Um, and I just think that's wrong, but I want to... Um, it's this assumption that seems to be around that Christianity is not about politics, but it's about saving souls. And then there follows from that the kind of assumption that the church is therefore subordinate to the government in matters of public policy along the lines that Ivan has outlined. Mm-hmm. Um, and they cite Romans 13 for this attitude. And then that makes... Uh, Christians follow in their re- that makes their response so weak to these unconscionable violations of human rights and the unforgivable dehumanization of COVID critics, of care home residents, of vaccine victims, and so on by our health officials. I've just I've been so astonished at how the church uh, that should actually think the way that again Ivan outlined. If we, I mean, we're not secular, right? We're, we're Christians who should think that the government is accountable not only to the people, which it is in a secular law-based constitutional state, but it's accountable to God. Mm. So, you know, if the government doesn't do its job of uh, creating, being a servant of the common good, but starts telling us what the common good is, and mm. it's contrary to God's mm. law, then obviously we need to resist. But I think the weak, why are we so weak at that? I think it's because we somehow think that Christianity is inherently apolitical, but just the fact the way that Paul puts it in the passages that um, Ivan just mentioned should tell us that, you know, there's a political responsibility um, in the Christian. And it's always been the standard view, I think, the Latin Christian tradition from Augustine onward, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, that God and Christ are um, in authority over both realms, right? Over both regiments, the, 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 the church and the temporal powers. Um, and therefore, both are accountable to him. Um, 
And so if, you, if, if they don't do their job, then uh, you need to resist. Um, I just wanted to turn to Bonhoeffer for um, who makes this intrinsic political nature of Christianity um, very much clearer, even than I thought somebody like uh, Luther does. Um, so Bonhoeffer, for Bonhoeffer, you just cannot separate Christian faith from politics. And I'll, I want to just delineate quickly why. Because the connection for him is, um, is the incarnation. So the connection between private faith and public political life is the fact that the God the Son, the heart of creation, and the sustaining center of reality became human in Jesus and thereby summed up all of humanity and all of reality in himself. So Christ is not only the center of the Bible, Bonhoeffer keeps saying this ad nauseum in ethics, and not just the center of the Bible and the church, but also of justice, of reason, of all that is true and good in reality and in the world. And because Christ is the heart of creation in this way, our response to Christ is equally a response to all of reality. Because Christ is the origin and guardian of all that is good, just, and true, Christians are equally called to uphold the good, the just, and the true in society. Because Christ is the new humanity, Christians must defend human dignity and humaneness in society. For Bonhoeffer, then, belief in Christ just simply rules out a private faith. It's just not there. And Christian political engagement does not mean a particular Christian politics, however. Right? So Bonhoeffer warns time and time again against trying to turn the world into the kingdom of God according yeah. to what we think this might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but Christians, So Christians should not fight for a Christian state or a Christian economy but for a secular order that reflects Christian values like humaneness, truth, justice, and goodness in those in all those arenas. arenas. Um, so Bonhoeffer reports this curious experience from his own time, which I find interesting because I think it reflects a little bit our time, is um, that when goodness, truth, and justice in society were stable, then people kind of didn't think about where all this stuff comes mm-hmm. from. Right? What's the origin and basis of that? And in those times, the gospel seemed to be for those who are on the margins, right? For the prostitute, for the beggar, or maybe for those who don't get their life together. But everybody else could rely on these structures and was pretty much running along just fine. So the gospel then becomes this inner salvation thing that maybe turns life around of people that really are in need of it, but otherwise uh, we're fine. And it's only when everything gets upended when the state actually becomes the oppressor, when these kind of things shift and what we normally assume is being guaranteed starts falling apart. He says, in those times, people begin to remember that the crucified Christ, this is a quote from his ethics, that the crucified Christ is the refuge, justification, protector, and origin of justice, truth, humaneness, and freedom. Um, So I was wondering, you know, when you looked at the... uh, at the tracker convoy and so on, this confluence of Christianity and other beliefs in there, whether there isn't something like that going on, that people are, and the Christians certainly remember the foundations of freedom and so on, mm-hmm. and whether, whether there isn't something one, uh, one can build on in that way. Um, so, I mean, in short, biblical theology, according to Bonhoeffer, tells us that Christianity is inherently concerned with politics, and Christian churches must resist dehumanizing oppressive government policies. And obviously this need for political resistance resistance arises when the government no longer protects the good or even willingly perpetrates evil. It becomes the beast, um, as we've said. And so let me just end here on 
the same question that Ivan raised. So what does, and we've been talking about, what does Christian resistance then look, look like? Now, in the Protestant tradition, Luther thought that Christians should speak out clearly against political injustice, should not aid it, but should always resist passively. So he should suffer, should suffer gladly the consequences. Um, and certainly resistance should always be passive. And the interesting thing is if you do some research, you realize that Luther is talking in a feudal system. So he thinks that all the peasants and all the underlings have a lord, a feudal lord, who fights for them. And that lord is actually allowed to defend freedoms and so on with weapons, with violence, just not the peasants and you know, the likes of your eye in that, in that feudal system. So that's something to keep in mind, I think. Now, to Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, as is well known, he argued for the possible situation when the church must no longer passively resist simply assist victims of state oppression and passively resist, but has to actively interrupt and stop evil, as we also mentioned, right? And we all know the famous line of reaching into the wheel of the state itself to stop it, mm-hmm. which is really translated often in really um, interesting ways. But the picture is that you have a runaway um, you know, chariot or, or a heavy loaded cart, and it's trundling towards some destruction, and you need to rush in there and put your hands into the spokes, oh, right, to stop yeah. it. Wow! Um, so there is a there's like a risk involved, right? You risk it's your like the concept of the juggernaut. Yeah, the con- like that. Um, so, so for Bonhoeffer, direct political action of the church is indeed a possibility, and it's required. He says when the church sees that the state fails in its function to establish justice and order. So either a lack of order or too much order would both be opportunities mm. um, where, this, or where this would be necessary. So political overreach, for instance, would justify such Christian political action. Um, he, he even writes, I mean, it sounds like today, right? He writes, for example, when the state deprives a group of citizens of their rights, or when the state wants to dictate the church how to preach the gospel, in such cases the state fails in its God-ordained function and thus negates its own existence. It becomes illegitimate. And in such cases, then active political resistance is called for. Now, I just want to caution here. Um, there is no direct line from this uh, call to resistance in, by Bonhoeffer to the final, his final decision to endorse the assassination of Hitler. So, you know, this kind of concept does not mean that we now should take out our political leaders because the situation um, was still different. Like, there was no other recourse um, when Bonhoeffer made this decision. And we can talk about how he justified that position, but that's not really what um, my main interest is here. It just My interest was to say with Bonhoeffer that Christianity is inherently political and that resistance is, is called for when the government loses its function. I mean, he would be in the same camp. Yep. Yes, I, I, I agree with you as well. Um, the... The notion that the church is apolitical is impossible in the light of the conclusion to the apocalypse. The appearance of the rider on the white horse in in judgment is is you know brings us to to the end of this crescendo that we were talking about and the the notion that the that that the righteous somehow reign with Christ um, 
that they that they contribute to the triumph of the Christ, albeit chiefly through suffering and martyrdom, uh, is not a notion that makes any sense if there are no there is no attempt to put the the I would I prefer to try a two by four or, or a steel bar before my hands, but at any rate, um, if there is no attempt to stop this 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 runaway cart, if there is no attempt to stop the anarchy that is the anarchy from above, then there won't be any suffering um, that 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 amounts to martyrdom. There will only be suffering that amounts to to the abuse that a slave takes yeah. um, from an illegitimate and and ill-behaved master. So if 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 the apocalypse makes any sense on the practical level, it it must include the notion that because the true king of the universe has been crowned by God in the in the resurrection and ascension of the Christ, um, that that the church has a political uh, role to play in in this world, and it must it must play it. We talked about the fear that was an early sign that something was wrong. What about the fact that in fear and because of fear, the church stopped doing what the church was supposed to do, mm. to sing, to speak, mm. to worship, all those things that the church is, is seen as doing in the apocalypse from the opening chapter. The, the, the gathering of of uh, you know, on the day of the Lord to worship the Lord, and and the and the elders of Israel and the church gathered a couple of chapters later to to um, to honor uh, God as King and the Christ as King. What happened to all of that from from the very first wave of this of this crisis in the very first days of it? Mm-hmm. That all stopped. That music stopped completely. Mm. And that ought not to have been. And and it seems to me that it's dead easy for the for the for the church to do what it should do politically, and that is to resume all of that. Now, some places it has been resumed, but the terrible precedent has not been erased, and and in many places it's still being resumed in a masked and shrouded sort of fashion. And that needs to stop. If the church gets on with being the church, that will already be enough to put a, a uh, you know, a two by four in the spokes of the cart. And it should have happened from day one. Yes. It's harder now to do it effectively, but it must be done. If the church is unwilling to be the church, who is going to be willing to stand, uh, you know, for for what is right and good and just? So, so the church must, it, it doesn't even have to go looking beyond itself for things to do. It doesn't have to talk about, well, should we join a, you know, a, some kind of assassination plot? Mm. There are probably people in Russia talking about that right now, and maybe with good reason, but, but as there were in Bonhoeffer's Germany. But we don't have to do that here, and we shouldn't do it here. What we should talk, be talking about is the church being the church without allowing the state to prevent that or limit it. 
And that will be resistance enough. It will be easily as effective as the truckers uh, protest and more effective in the long run. I only could wish it had started two years ago rather than right needing to begin again or begin now. So Douglas and Michael, both of you have been taking up the pen as the sword and resisting with your words in very powerful ways. Um, Michael, I'm wondering if you have, I, I know our listeners are going to be asking, I don't know how to resist. I don't have a voice like others have. I feel incapacitated in terms of knowing what to do. People have said this directly to me. How? What do I do? I know there's crazy things going on, but I don't know how to resist. How, how would you instruct some of our listeners in that direction? Well, in keeping with what I read, um, I think that, well, something like what we're doing right now is part of it already. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to be creating parallel structures, which include Christian structures like this. Yes. That are, first of all, we need to create structures so that we can survive and and become and stay sane because part of what's happening here is a a massive gaslighting and propaganda campaign uh which includes an endless series of reversive blockades that is statements that are the exact opposite of the truth being propagated on a constant basis uh so in order to to uh, resist first thing is to be is to be with not to live not by lies yes to live in truth and to speak it yep. um, and that takes courage and and not everybody can do it on this on a big stage and doesn't have to uh, so the first thing is to be uh, to 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 be able to live in the truth to, to not speak lies and uh, to assert the truth, and the second thing is to par- to to build the parallel structures that allow us to do this uh, in in a, in a greater sense. That is, parallel social structures, parallel economic structures, hmm. uh, parallel Christian or believing structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be parallel to the churches you're you're actually attending. Uh, they may be parallel to the uh, denomination that you happen to be associated with, uh, but all these things give us the the, be- the buttress to speak the truth and to live it. That's wonderful. I it reminds me when you say about insanity. James Houston, a professor of spiritual theology at Regent College, formerly. Um, used to say his definition of insanity was insanity is to be alone in one's thoughts. The way that our group came together is a lot of people were feeling very much alone. And you do begin to think, am I completely crazy because I'm asking questions? And then you find a community of like-minded people who affirm for you that, no, you're not crazy. And in fact, let's test each other's ideas like it's not being done in other venues in order to ensure that we are not insane. And uh, I think it's a very healthy practice. So I take that well. Um, 
that we should be gathering together in parallel structures and really in the church doing a robust job of fellowshipping with one another. Absolutely. Well, I have one final uh, thought, maybe four minutes, um, because I wanted to talk about uh, resistance as a form of love. God's presence, according to Psalm 139, is inescapable. Bidden or unbidden, God is present. If I go up to the heavens, says the psalmist, you are there. If I go down into the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. It's beautiful. It's a comfort. Perhaps it's a comfort to the soul feeling abandoned. God is near. However, rifting it would seem on this sublime psalm, like a capable guitarist riffs on Stairway to Heaven in a different key, Amos the prophet thunders in a world of injustice that divine justice too is inescapable. He depends on Psalm 139. It's in Amos 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and I shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Bidden or unbidden, God is present. When you feel lost, don't worry, says Psalm 139. He is with you. When you think you will escape justice, transposes Amos the prophet. Don't get too comfortable because the almighty God knows exactly where to find you. He too is with you. He is near. Jonathan Edwards once said something like this. The divine and supernatural light of the saint is the divine and supernatural darkness of the sinner. To the saint, heaven is God. To the sinner, hell is God. If there is justice, friends, Edwards couldn't have said it better. Now, I'll let that sit for a second and shift to the topic of resistance. Here's the question. Why should the Christian resist those who do evil? Well, we might say it's because to resist evil is a primary duty of the Christian. And this is, of course, true. Sin and evil are ruinous. They're not just distasteful blots that the Christian has lost a taste for. Evil things, evil people, evil systems are themselves, in an Augustinian sense, the deprivation of the good, the true, the beautiful, things that do damage and inflict harm and suck life and wreak havoc in God's good world. Havoc on things God loves. Havoc on people God loves. Such havoc, in fact, that Scripture holds out the very real possibility of eternal lostness, of everlasting separation from everything that is good, holy, and praiseworthy. So why do we resist? Well, we resist not only to push back the evil and immediate harms that go with it, but we also resist the evil things sinful people do as a loving warning to them in order to win back sinners for God. 
issuing warning to those who think they will be able to escape from the inescapable God is a form of love. This is why the prophets thunder with words and actions of resistance, because to resist in this way is a form of love. It is a form, as I think it was the formerly Westminster Reform scholar Meredith Klein, as he coined it. It is a form of, quote-unquote, intrusion ethics. Intrusion ethics. The idea is that the final judgment of God will come, as Christians have professed throughout the ages, when Jesus comes to judge the quick and the dead. And when a word of judgment or action of judgment befalls now, it may be taken as an intruding foretaste of that end. It is the end previewed here and now, while there is yet time to repent and be saved. Thus, resistance to sin and evil, my friends, is a form of love. It's I been- think that was very well said and a, and, and a suitable point at which to wrap up. Thank you. Thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us, uh, especially Michael. Thank you so much for your time. We know how busy you are. And uh, I commit to praying for you, and I hope our listeners will do so too. We know that um, there's a lot going on, and may God give each one of us the strength that we need so that we may be faithful with the gifts that he's given us and the opportunities in this day. Uh, Bless each one of you, and we'll see you again next time.